Parenting for me is one of the most rewarding jobs I've ever had. I feel like it's the most rewarding job on earth. It's also the most challenging. Every single child, every single teenager, every single one of us has a need to be seen first and foremost by our Heavenly Father, but we also have a need to feel seen by those that we love and those that we do life with. Well, good morning, everyone. It's so, so good to be with you here on Mother's Day. A very happy Mother's Day to you. I think Jenna did a great job holding all the complexity and yet the joy that this Sunday, uh, we know many of you are visiting us because either your children are here and you can pinch their cheeks and tell them how proud you are of them for going to church on a Sunday. We'll pretend like they come every Sunday. It's great. We'll do a whole thing with you uh, and then we can go have brunch afterwards. Um, but the reason why we're starting this brand new series as a church that quite honestly is mostly filled with young professionals uh, is that th the idea of parenting is swirling around our culture right now. Uh, there was a really interesting survey done by the Pew Research Center that was asking millennials specifically, so pretty much those between the age of 26 to eh, 42, if we want to be generous, right? And 26 to 42 year olds of this millennial generation, uh, when surveyed about their highest value, get this, 52% of millennials said their highest value was being a parent. It was one of the most important things in their life. That ranked higher to millennials than a successful marriage. Uh, only 30% said that was the most important value. Then owning a home, I mean, that feels a little obvious. Am I right? I don't mean to, you know, rub it in for us millennials. Most of us don't own homes, so goodbye to that value. Uh, and finally, even having a high-paying career. Millennials were saying that being a parent was more important to them. Now, one other really interesting finding of this Pew Center for Research survey was that 57% of fathers now say that fathering or parenting is extremely important to their identity. In fact, uh, another study suggested that dads today in this millennial generation are spending three times as much time with their children as previous generations of fathers are. Um, I can attest to this unexpectedly. I, I am a uh, career-driven professional. I assumed uh, for lots of reasons I would just always be working. And surprisingly, through the way that life has kind of gone, but also through the value I have of being present to kids, I've now found myself not just in one, but two seasons. Uh, one during COVID and another one uh, when we had the birth of our second son, where I had at least a day a week, if not more, that I was just home parenting and realizing how intense, <laughs> how uh, time-consuming, taxing, exhausting, emotionally disturbing uh, it is to just be fully present to a child all the time. And so my encouragement to you in this series uh, is, I'm getting some amens over here from Jeff, thank you, thank you Jeff, um, we can talk after. My encouragement to you with this series is that uh, if you are a parent and your kids are out of the house, this is a fun chance to kind of have wisdom to pass on, uh, things to talk about with your kids as you reflect on parenting, because your kids are asking questions. How do we be good parents? Uh, if you are currently a parent, this series is for you, and hopefully this will be really encouraging, thought-provoking, and will allow us to sort of enter into what the Bible actually has to teach us about parenting. Yet, yeah, especially for my young professionals, I know many of you one day will either become parents, you're maybe having serious conversations about becoming a parent 
Soon, maybe you're struggling with parenting, you're trying to figure out what your relationship to kids is going to be, or maybe right now you want nothing to do with this, and yet you at some point were parented, right? So all of us have something here to pick up and reflect on together. And I just want to encourage you over these next uh, five weeks that we're going to be going through this series. We'll be leaning into mental health, we'll be talking about faith formation, and we hopefully will share it in a way that will keep you really hooked and engaged. So to dive in, though, uh, I wanted to begin by taking us to the Gospel of Mark. If you have a Bible, you can open up there. I'm going to have it up on the screen for you. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, uh, Jesus finds himself in this controversial moment. Uh, If you actually go back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, you're going to have two major controversies in Jesus' day that he's going to tackle head on. He's going to steer right into them. The first controversy Jesus takes on is divorce. Now, how many of you would like me to talk about divorce this morning? Okay, good, great. Uh, We're not going to talk about it this morning. Uh, I don't want to have to deal with divorce today. I'm talking about parenting. That's hard enough. Uh, But Jesus tackles divorce, and then after divorce, Jesus talks about money. Anyone looking for a money sermon this Sunday? No? Uh, Tim, thank you. Uh, No? No one else? Okay, good. So we're not going to talk about money either. If you're interested in hearing what Jesus has to say about both of those, feel free to go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. But what I find interesting is that in either side of these controversies, Jesus has sort of confronted the religious elites. And Jesus is asked a probing question by them about what Jesus is going to say to somebody with money, like, what do you do, Jesus, about money? And then Jesus also is going to be confronted, hey, so Jesus, what happens if somebody gets divorced? What would you say? And yet, between these two stories, uh, smushed in the middle, Jesus is going to have this interaction that I think he intentionally was trying to use to teach, to reframe, to actually even get the perspective focused in on what the true heart of his good news was that he wanted to bring people. In fact, it's almost like Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 10, listen, I know you're distracted by all the hot button issues, but can I focus you in on what really, really matters? So here we go. This is Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 13. This is what we find. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. Now, this is kind of fun and interesting. To be clear, uh, in the ancient world, much like today, uh, you have celebrities, people of influence, significance. Jesus as a rabbi, as a teacher of God, would be viewed as having special power, special authority. So what we kind of find going on here is that parents, having heard there's someone who could help their kids get ahead, have a little bit of an advantage in life, flock to this person, Jesus, to look for a little extra something from God to pour blessing on their children. Now, I find this incredibly relevant to our contemporary society today, in which I've noticed parents do almost anything to give their children the edge to get ahead, right? Whether they put them in extracurriculars, after school, uh, specialized sports leagues. I mean, parents are looking for the edge, and this was true back then, just as true as it was today. And so the disciples you know, who's, who's to really say? Uh, the disciples see this happening, all these parents crowding in to push their kids towards Jesus, and the disciples get a little bit indignant about this. Now, I always assumed the disciples were just being naive or were being ignorant, but there's a part of me as I've been sitting with this story this week wondering, maybe the disciples see, quite honestly, that these parents are just trying to have their children get ahead, right? That maybe the disciples are even 
annoyed at the parents, like, stop trying to use Jesus to just get a little extra blessing for your children. But this is where the story is really interesting. Jesus, instead of agreeing with the disciples' assessment that these parents need to be rebuked for pushing their kids to the head of the line, when Jesus sees this, he is going to become indignant. He is going to actually feel frustrated with his disciples. They've missed something. Then he's going to say this to them. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I mean, what's so beautiful about Jesus, what feels compelling even today, is that uh, it's just helpful to note, like, kids, kids never are sophisticated creatures. If you see my son wandering the halls, he will have snot running down his face. So bear this in mind, like, these are little, awkward, messy children. And yet, in the ancient world, children were especially demeaned and devalued. In fact, really horrifically, tragically, in Roman culture, if you had a child that you did not want, it was common practice, common practice, for you to simply leave that child out in the streets. And someone would come and either pick up that child and would sell them into slavery, or the child would die uh, quite naturally. And this happened regularly, so much so that the whole upper class of Roman society said this was common, acceptable practice. Uh, the same was true across the ancient world, though that even if you had children, they technically had no rights until they hit a certain age. And then if you, you think about it in the ancient world, if you were a daughter, you were sold, essentially. I mean, it was put a little bit more sophisticated than that in a dowry and all the rest, but you were sold into a marriage to help your family advance. If you were a son, you really only had rights if you were the oldest son. And if you were behind the oldest son, you were really there, I mean, to put it crassly, again, but you were really there as backup in case the oldest son died that the family would have another son that they could pass the inheritance onto. Now, I know parents then, just as now, would have loved their children in a general way. But as a society, children were not valued. They had no status. Uh, they were not seen as something that had intrinsically any value or right to exist. You really only became valuable once you hit this stage of inheritance where you as an adult could enter into your purpose in society. And if you weren't there, you very well could be sold, looked over, passed on. Yet Jesus says, remarkably, just let this sit with you for a second, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The whole kingdom of God belongs to these, these who are seen as worthless, valueless, who have no status or inherent rights. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom like a little child isn't going to get in. And then, as if his point wasn't clear enough, Jesus takes the kids, literally says he embraced them. The word is that of a hug in his arms and placing his hands on them, he blessed them. Okay, I, I want to be clear as we start off this parenting series. There are weird pockets of our culture where kids are viewed as the only thing that matters in life. So what I'm not going to try to do this morning 
is to reinforce to you that all you should do is just stare at your children or stare at kids endlessly, you know, like drop everything so that you can be helicopter mom, helicopter dad, hover over every detail. That's not what Jesus is getting at, right? And I just want to be clear, that's not what we're trying to reinforce here. But where I do want us to begin in this U Plus Parenting series is to ask, why does Jesus tell us that unless we become like a little child, we will not enter in to the kingdom of God. Why would Jesus tell us that? I want to offer you two, two insights that if you pay attention to little children, I think fundamentally teach us the posture Jesus is talking about when he says you will need this to get into the kingdom of God. Are you ready? So here we go. Let's talk about the first insight we can get if we stare closely enough at children. The first thing I think kids teach us that Jesus is gesturing towards is what I'm going to call kingdom dependency. Kingdom dependency. Now, uh, this, there's this moment that happens. I know, again, our young professionals in the room haven't had this yet, uh, and so I'm just sharing it because it has happened to me. The moment when you first receive your first child in your hands, and Mother's Day, parents here, you can nod your head, you know what I'm talking about. It is a bit of a terrifying moment when a child is first placed into your hands that is yours in the hospital. Now, normally the child is first placed on mom, which is great. Uh, as a dad in the room, I was like, whew, good thing she's handling this one. You know, like, I, I'm not ready yet. But then pretty quickly, the child is placed in my hands. Our daughter, Hazel, is now four. But the first time I held her, I realized inherently, in, inside, like my gut, I realized that everything she needed would be required from me in order to provide, right? Like, she can do nothing on her own at the start. And in fact, every single thing she would learn to do, if you now see our daughter, four years old, wandering around, she's going to the bathroom by herself, she's getting chained, she can talk to you, it's really fun. We had to teach her how to do every one of those things. And I can tell you, it was mostly awkward, it was very messy, uh, there were some very stressful moments still uh, where she has not nailed going to the bathroom, let's say, or even eating. Uh, food goes everywhere in my house. We're not getting into any more details than that. Uh, but the point is that the child is just looking at you like, I need you to exist. And I think as adults, our impulse is to do everything possible to escape that kind of dependency, right? We're working really, really hard to make sure that our lives are as sort of built up, insular as possible. I know I'm driven to create a savings account so that if there's an emergency, I can cover it. And I really want to get to a point with my home where it's like I don't need other things or other people or other places. I can just live within this self-contained environment. And yet what Jesus is saying is if you don't learn how to be dependent on God like a little child is, you're never going to get how this works how you're going to be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the Apostle Paul is going to put it quite beautifully and starkly. I'm sure you've possibly seen this verse before. The Apostle Paul in the letter to the Romans is going to say this, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now, there's a lot going on in this verse. Uh, you'll notice just first and foremost the contrast, right? Spirit's not actually making us slaves. We're, we're not meant to walk around uh, our relationship to God 
existed as a servant that's just there to do whatever God bids. Instead, radically, Paul says, we actually, by the Spirit, are brought in as children. We become sons and daughters, so much so that we, we get the privilege and the access to use this phrase, Abba, Father. Now, uh, this has been around in church circles for a while. Forgive me if you've heard this before, but just in case you haven't, Abba is this Aramaic loan word that means quite literally, Daddy. Daddy, it's the word that a child would use to talk to their father, Abba, Abba, Abba. And as you sort of feel the word Abba, it feels very casual, it feels very informal, it feels like that sort of quick demand access that a phrase like Daddy would be in English today. Paul says, because we're children, we now get to say, Daddy, Father, in our relationship with God. Uh, I was thinking about the phrase, Daddy, and again, I've got a four-year-old. I know I'm referencing her a lot. You'll hopefully see her, see my two-year-old son. Both of them, at the end of the service, are going to cry out, Daddy, Daddy, and the best part, my favorite thing about it, is that it doesn't sound weird when they say it, right? Like, when you see them, they start saying, Daddy, and then they run up to me. None of you are going to be like, that was a little informal. Uh, they, they seem a little too close, you know, don't know what's going on there in that relationship. I can assure you that if any of you, uh, even my closest friends here in this community, were to shout out daddy to me after the service and run up and try to give me a hug, people would be a little concerned and I would definitely feel uncomfortable. The point is that daddy is not a phrase that you get to use in your relationship to me. But daddy is a phrase that my children get to say because they are my son and my daughter. And here's what Paul is saying. It's so radical if we sit with him, take him seriously. You have the kind of relationship now to God that my children have in speaking to me. You get to call on God as your father, not just informally, not just as his uh, staff or, you know, paid employee, not even as a servant or slave. You get to say, Daddy, God, I need you. And God cares for you the same way that a good father cares for their children. Uh, just because I want to hit mothers on Mother's Day, there's another beautiful passage. I think Paul is kind of summoning. That's right there in the Old Testament for us. If you've ever had a chance to read Psalm 131, it's one of the Psalms of, of Ascent. Look where the psalmist goes in a society that didn't naturally lift women up to the heights. This is how the psalmist will choose to describe their relationship to God. They say, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Now, I think one of the reasons we miss the beauty of this passage is the word weaned is kind of a weird word unless you're in parenting mode. Uh, weaned is when a child is brought off of milk and begins to learn to eat solid food. Uh, a weaned child, the image that's being evoked here, is one who now is no longer desperate or hungry every time that they draw close to their mother to receive milk, but a weaned child instead is one that can rest contented, actually knows it, its whole development has happened so that it can receive the nourishing food and then just be in relationship to its mother. Now, that's a really beautiful image. However, I recently stumbled across the Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay, 
who argued that the Hebrew here is a little bit tricky, as most Hebrew poetry is. And he says uh, the phrasing here for weaned actually would better be a child who's eaten, who's just recently had their fill of milk. And so he, his point, which I think is an even more beautiful picture, even though it says the same thing, is a child who's just nursed, who's just fed, and now is sleeping on their mother. There's something here for you when it comes to your relationship with God. I think if you move past this, if you miss this, then as Jesus says, you're going to miss something so important about how we enter into relationship with God. If you cannot become like a child that cries out, Daddy, Father, if you cannot become like a child that can just rest knowing its full nourishment is coming directly from God, you're never going to be able to learn how to live and walk in these rhythms of grace that Jesus has come to teach us. If that's kingdom dependency, let me give you the other value. I think Jesus here also is talking about what I'm going to call kingdom wonder. Kingdom wonder. Now, I want to just take you to Romans 8 again. This is actually the same passage, and if you go to Romans 8, uh, where Paul is talking, he's using all of this adoption language, he's using this children language. In fact, you even notice that Paul uses birthing language to talk about the creation and this big upheaval that creation is waiting for the moment when God's going to come and is going to start restoring everything. And Paul's going to say this, we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Here's why I wanted to throw this rather complex and intense passage up here. I think Paul is tracking this image that says, listen, our struggle is going to be hope, right? We're going to lose constantly the imagination to say God is actually going to redeem us. God is actually going to restore this broken and fallen world. And so how, how can any of us, how can any of us walk in this hope? How can we live in the city where you're going to get hit by all these pressures, job pressures, housing pressures, family pressures, relational breakdown pressures, uh, supervisor pressures? I mean, they're all coming in at you. How do you hold on to the hope that not only is God going to redeem you, but that God even exists and cares about you. Well, Paul says, we, we've got we've to groan and struggle and return to almost these like birthing pangs of being a child looking to God. Here's what I think, uh, here's where I think these two passages can intersect. I think one of the ways we can recover hope is by spending time with children. You just spend time with them. Now, we have a beautiful ministry called Kid City. As you've seen, it's in the lobby of a bar. Uh, so there is alcohol signs everywhere. I realize we are forming complex associations in our children's brains between alcohol and church. Uh, hopefully, we'll figure those out. But I uh, just want to encourage you as you think about where you can serve in our church, even as we go into the summer where we always need help. Um, Kid City is a ministry. Like, our dream is that we would actually love our children, teach them the ways of God, raise them up to love and follow Jesus. But uh, my suggestion to you this morning is that 
if you serve in Kid City, not only is it a ministry to the kids, the kids are actually going to minister to you. And one of the ways they will do so is by relentlessly reminding you of the wonder of existence. Like just the wonder of being alive. Uh, we were with my daughter just yesterday over at a friend's house. Uh, we were walking in their front yard that just had a little bit of grass and honestly had weeds. You could tell the friends were like, oh, we've got to get this sorted out. There's weeds and like yard and all the rest. And as we're walking, uh, I am distractedly talking about very serious things, I'm sure, with these friends. And all of a sudden, my four-year-old daughter just veers off. I have no idea where she's going. And I feel the stress of like, oh, is she going to run onto a road? What's that? Like, what's going on? Oh, Hazel, no, what are you? And I notice she just stops. And she picks up a dandelion, and then she just goes, Whew. like, <laughs> wow. And that was it. She, had, she didn't need anything else. There was no comment. There was no thought to it. It was just full presence to the glory and beauty of a weed that was driving our friends crazy, and yet that in which she saw the beauty and wonder of life. Um, one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, the apologist, who was an Oxford scholar. If you know any of C.S. Lewis's journey, he comes back to God in his 30s after being an ardent atheist, um, then as uh, an apologist for Christianity, starts to write these very thoughtful, lofty books, uh, have a lot of philosophy in them, shares broadcasts during World War II that are highly influential in British society, arguing for the existence of God, but then late in his life and in his career, he begins writing these children's stories that are called the Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe being the most famous and in the letter uh, that, they, that someone had to Lewis, they were sort of poking at him saying, hey, uh, Lewis, why are you writing children's stories when you should be writing the serious stuff, these important lofty arguments defending Christianity? And Lewis replies with a little bit of sass, uh, I take mild offense at the fact that you call them children's stories. They were really written for adults but it just so happens children are better suited to understand what they're trying to say. I think this is some of the point that Lewis gets at with his children's stories. The thing we really need if we're going to hold on to hope is wonder. We really have to recover the sense of being in a world that is so much bigger and more exciting and filled with possibility and God than the world that you and I each currently inhabit. And yet, if we're going to recover that wonder, we're going to have to pay attention to children. We may even have to humble ourselves to learn something from them. Um, there's one last quote for you. This is from a contemporary of C.S. Lewis named G.K. Chesterton. And you can sort of see that between C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, they're in this similar time about 100 years ago when culture was shifting towards a pretty antagonistic stance towards God. And I'm, I'm not sure that we've even really moved on from this sort of modern late modern mindset that God seems sort of unbelievable at best. And children really need to grow up and begin to believe in more serious things. Uh, this is what G.K. Chesterton says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. 
It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Now I realize that's a heady quote that comes at you with a lot, but I think it effectively holds the invitation into a kingdom wonder. If even this morning you have grown tired, if even this morning you are filled with doubt, if even this morning you are disappointed and disillusioned with where the church has been, where what Christian faith has meant, with where life has led you, is it possible that if you spent time with a child, you could actually see this invitation again, this invitation into dependency and wonder? Just one last story to close. Um, one of my favorite things in my 20s before I had kids was going over uh, every Sunday night. We had this rhythm in a faith community we were part of before where we would do a sort of post-service meal at our pastor's place, and the pastor was in his 40s, and he had a six-year-old and a four-year-old son, and we'd gather together, and sometimes there would be like very impressive, important people there in the circle, and other times there'd be us 20-year-olds like myself at the time who were not important or successful at all, and yet as we're sitting in a circle, normally we'd be talking, and we'd be discussing the service or God or reflecting deeply on life, and at almost every Sunday, uh, his four-year-old son would run up to him and just start tugging on his sleeve. I'm sure you've seen this. My kids do this too. Just tugging on his sleeve. And I, I loved watching that every time, every time the dad would pause, whatever conversation was happening, and he'd tilt his head and he'd listen as the son would sort of pull up to him and want to whisper in his ears. And as the son would whisper something to him, the dad always, my favorite part, would smile, would just have this delight of like, intimacy and connection and dependency and wonder. Whatever this four-year-old was bringing, it was just making this father's heart so happy. You and I have the chance to enter into that kind of relationship with God. Maybe this week you need to take some time to go tug on the sleeve of your heavenly father and remember that you have been given the privilege of calling God your Abba Father. You pray with me. God, this morning I just want to lift up every parent who's here in this room. Parents whose kids have grown up and parents whose kids are still very much in their homes. And Lord, we do want to take a chance to pray particularly for mothers who carry the unique and beautiful burden of closeness of that intense dependency that their children have on them, and yet that beautiful gift of love, of hospitality, of generosity, of beauty that they bring into their children's lives. With this morning, you remind the mothers here how much their relationship means to your kids, to your children, God, who are learning about you through their mothers. Yet, Lord, I also wanna pray for those of us here uh, those who do not yet have children, those who hope one day for children, 
those who are wrestling with this complex task and journey into parenting. Lord, would even now, as Jenna shared, you remind them that we here as the church are a village and that we all together get to receive the gift from these kids in our lives, seeing what it looks like to live in relationship with you. Would you lift us up, encourage us this Mother's Day, and invite us more deeply as a community into parenting with you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.